Hello, this is Kat and this is Feminine Chaos. I'm here today with Sasha Stone. Sasha is the creator, founder of Awards Daily, which is your one-stop shop for all things Oscar and, and other awards season gossip, I think. Sasha, do you also cover the Golden Globes or is it just the Oscars? No, we cover all of awards season and hi, Kat. Thanks for having me. It's so <laughs> nice to meet you. I'm such a big fan of your writing. You're just, I think you're just the best writer. Oh, I read thank your you. book. I loved your book. And I, you know, I hang on every tweet. Oh, my <laughs> so, goodness. And I read your articles. Yeah, I just. Uh, so anyway, it's nice to talk to you. Oh, it's so nice to talk to you. I'm a huge fan. I've been for years, people have been um, sometimes asking me for insight about Oscar drama. And I'm always like, don't listen to me. I don't know. You got to read Sasha's work. Oh, that's um, and especially when somebody asked me recently about sexism in the, I think, the best director race, and mm -hmm. I, I was able to refer them back to you. Not, that's something that we're going to talk about a little bit later, because I think that you have really good insights on sort of the... Uh, so sort of like a measured take on what's real about sexism in Hollywood and what's maybe like a little trumped up. Um, and it's good that we're we're talking now because there is Oscar drama a brewing. It's February 23rd. And um, I just realized actually that I don't know when the Oscars are this year, which is a huge relief to me because for years I used to uh, be an entertainment journalist at these various mm -hmm. outlets where I would always end up roped into covering the Oscars. Like if you get down <laughs> to awards season and then they'd be like, oh, we'll give you like an extra hundred dollars if you spend your Sunday night in this horrible way. And I would always be like, okay. <laughs> and then I would be sitting there just hating life. Um, the first time that I... It, like in years that I didn't have to cover the Oscars was maybe like 20, maybe even 2018 or 2019. And just like the relief of not having to pay attention oh, to it. <laughs> it was amazing. But you cover this by choice. This is your jam. So I really want to know how you um, first kind of came to the Oscars as your beat. Yeah, so um, my cat is is meowing in the background. In case you hear that, I just want you to know. For some reason, he's he gets very nervous when I start talking on the, on the podcast. He's so used to complete silence in the apartment. What's <laughs> so, his name? His name is Dude. Dude, oh, that's <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah. He's a great, but he just he just gets very nervous, and so he starts meowing. But he just left, so that's fine. Um, yeah. So my friend and I joke because we've been doing the Oscars for so long that one day we will it will be Oscar morning for the nominations, and we won't wake up at five thirty a.m. to to pay attention to them. It's like I've been doing this for well since um nineteen ninety nine. Wow, <laughs> probably before you were born. Oh, um, please, that, no. I graduated from high school in nineteen ninety nine. Okay. <laughs> um, I had I had gone to Columbia Film School and I uh, graduated finally UCLA at like age thirty. It took me a, lo a long many city colleges to get through college and therapy, and um, I got a very small scholarship to Columbia Graduate Film School. And I went to one semester, met met a guy that I knew, fell madly in love, dropped out of Columbia. But the reason that that's important, because it, it explains why I got online, which is just that my life fell apart when I came back because he went back to his wife and, and I had nothing. I dropped out of film school. I had nothing. So I basically evacuated my own life and got online. And at that point, I was just online before there was even a, a web or anything like that. I was just talking to people all over the world about movies. And in 1999, the internet kind of opened up and anybody could have a website. And I just thought, this is really cool. I'm going to start my own business. I have a, a one-year-old baby here, which I had. It was a different story, a long story. But 
I wanted to stay home with her. I wanted to raise her and I wanted to to start this business in this wide open industry. And I started, I, I you know, I'd like to predict the Oscars. I was kind of into that. Um, I thought I was pretty good at it. And I thought it'd be kind of neat to start a website that tracked the Oscar race from the beginning of the year all the way to the end to, to cr- kind of crack the code. Like, why do some movies win and others don't? Why do we spend all this time saying Citizen Kane is the greatest film ever made? But How Green Was My Valley won Best Picture. Like, what's that about? So I just wanted to kind of figure it out. And I thought it might be kind of popular, you know, because a lot of people love the Oscars and they especially love predicting the Oscars. And so I just started that in 1999 and I raised a kid and a website alongside each other. The kid is now living in Brooklyn and is 23 and the website is now, you know, I I never like sold out to another site. I never got particularly wealthy. I mean, I make a living off of it. It never, you know, it's not one of those things I could say, yeah. And then Penske media bought my site and now I make, you know, it never turned into that. It never grew past that, but it is sort of its own little niche. Uh, You know, I have faithful readers and, um, I've basically cracked the code of the Oscars. Now I understand them <laughs> completely, but uh, the bloom is off the rose, as they say. But um, no, so so that was really how I got into that um, business. I kind of created it, and then I watched the industry kind of grow around me. Right, I was a I was a blogger, as you know. They they sort of invaded the world of journalism and and took over as as like self invented experts in various fields, right? In politics, it was happening. And, and in my business, I had a website before there were even blogs or bloggers. And then when the bloggers started to rise, I had to shift my coverage from being like a fake objective newspaper site to being an opinion-based blogging site, because that's what everybody else was doing. Um, it's just so funny how it seemed like I had to, you know, really adapt to the new times. <laughs> So you were basically, you know, before the Substack revolution, before the golden age of blogging, there was you doing this sort of entrepreneurial self-published writing online. You really, um, you might've started this trend. This might actually be all your fault. (laughs) I think a lot of it is. It's so funny because I'll never, probably never get credit for having, you know, for having done what I did, but also I will certainly be held accountable for, (laughs) for what I've, and you know, I, I was really good friends with David Carr, the uh, media reporter at the New York Times. He was kind of my mentor. And um, he, he I was so shocked when like the Os- when the New York Times got an Oscar blogger, you know, and it was him. And the LA Times got an Oscar blogger. And all of a sudden, this this whole thing became such a big industry that now it's so top heavy and it's so insular. I mean, it's really like fashion week. Like it doesn't even, it, it exists into its own bubble. The whole industry, people get paid you know, for, for championing the same movies that are made for the Oscar race. And, and that's why it couldn't shut down during COVID because everybody makes their living off of it. You know, even if people never see the movies or never even talk about the movies. I never that's thought about history. that. Yeah. And of course, our idea of, of what an Oscar worthy film is, as opposed to what kind of a movie people enjoy going to see and like eating popcorn and, and, you know, just like the movies that are sort of like the water cooler discussion, I feel like that's become more and more two separate categories. And there's been a lot of tension there over the past few years, especially as sort of, you know, normal theater going audiences have started to crave this 
recognition. You know, they want their movies that they love, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, to also be treated as though they're as prestigious as your biopic or your Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, like esoteric drama um, or your your Ridley Scott epic. Um, so where, where do you think that started, that tension between this this notion of like a sort of a normie movie as opposed to what we think of as Oscar bait? Well, part of it is honestly my fault and in my industry because we start the year as, you know, as you would in, in Fashion Week where we... We go to film festivals, Telluride, um, Venice, Cannes, whatever it is, and we scout for Oscar movies. And and then what we use as our criteria is what we think Oscar voters will go for. So already we've narrowed the scope right at the beginning to, you know, this these kind of Weinstein sort of driven character dramas, a lot of them, you know, in, in period pieces. And, you know, it has to sh- it had to change because of the woke revolution changed Hollywood and changed the Oscars, too. But, you know, so so we're already in this narrow. That's an Oscar movie and that's not an Oscar movie. And, you know, we essentially winnow down the pile and then we hand them to the industry voters and they either accept them or reject them. But very rarely do they step out of that little group that we've kind of collected for them, um, which I think is is a problem because it it really does. Uh, you know, it does sort of order things, like you say, two different worlds. But weirdly enough, it's it's um it's paralleled the Democratic Party and the left overall, because as you can see, the the same sort of elitism bubble that's happening on the left and and leaving out, as you wrote so beautifully, your Joe Rogan piece, leaving out such a um a big part of the public. You know, and so Hollywood is mirroring that. You know, they're mm-hmm. doing exactly the same thing. Um, so that's part of it, the natural way of things. Um, but it's also that studios cracked the code. They figured out how to make genre movies that, you know, were fewer choices for consumers that could make insane amounts of money, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And they, and they had raised this generation, Generation Z, on brands from when they were young, when they were babies. They were like Halloween uh, costumes and candies and um, their sodas and their phones and everything was a brand and they identified with them. And they're really like the only generation that was hundred percent raised on branding. So when they came of age, how easy was it to sell them these movies to these brands? And as you can see, fast food restaurants and movies, you know, they all kind of coalesced around these, you know, smaller choices for consumers um, with their expectations mostly met. And that's what happened in, in the movies. And the Oscars were trying to hold on to organic storytelling and real movies that were outside the formula of Hollywood. Um, they really do believe that the superhero movies killed their industry and that streaming was the adaptation to that. Streaming was the way to continue to make the kind of movies that they like um, without having to you know, graduate to a superhero movie. Yeah, you know, I've been thinking a lot about how Hollywood and publishing kind of align with each other. Like in publishing, you have the big celebrity memoir um, that, you know, the the author gets paid a lot of money and then the book makes a lot of money. And the whole idea there, you know, at these publishing houses is that 
that book, you know, that stupid book that's maybe not very good, but that is a huge cash cow is what allows all of this other fiction to be published because most authors, you know, they might make a certain amount of money to write a book and then they don't earn it out. They don't make it back. Um, So you have, you know, these, these big books, these big celebrity books um, subsidizing everybody else's work is it similar in hollywood you know where you have like the studios that are making your big tentpole superhero flicks and then that leaves them some room to subsidize the work of more like i don't want to say independent filmmakers because obviously they wouldn't be at a studio but people who are doing more boundary pushing stuff yeah i mean i think i explained it once um as what i I don't know if this is the case in, in book publishing it might be but um for me, the the Oscars are kind of like the salad at McDonald's. You know, it's like they provide a salad and it makes them seem like they're health conscious and it, it kind of gives them a, people a good feeling about them. See, they care about people's health because they offer salads. But most people aren't coming to the restaurant, to, to, to the brand to eat salads. So the Oscars serve a purpose for larger Hollywood. They can continue to make all of these movies, these these crazy branded, you know, superhero movies and then also have this on the side as a stamp that says you know see we we really do still care about quality Mm -hmm. Um, that's how I see it I don't know that that's the case in in publishing Um, it might be yeah, I don't know. I mean, in publishing, it's it's interesting. I guess maybe not dissimilar from like the way you have indie studios or you know studios that are sort of known like A twenty four for doing more esoteric stuff. Right. Um, you have like your literary publishing houses, um, and then you have your you know your more blockbuster people. But I'm I'm all obsessed now with the idea not just of you know the salad at McDonald's as a menu option, <laughs> but of the kind of person who goes to McDonald's to order the salad, and that this is like this is your Oscars movie watcher. That's really funny to me. Yeah, no, right? <laughs> they think that they're being healthy by eating a salad at McDonald's, right? And they're sort of looking down at everybody else in the McDonald's who's eating the fries and the Big Macs, even though they themselves are at a McDonald's. It's like you're not better. You actually chose. <laughs> the worst thing on the menu stop being smug <laughs> do you know how long that that lettuce has been sitting in there? you know what, what's even weirder and i know this is true about publishing uh you know how i was thinking about this and don't you think it's true that people in first class that's the other metaphor i use is that the oscars are like the first class section of an airplane and the people in coach they have you know they have to eat whatever they give them they have to you know they have a selection of movies but fine but in first class you get all the you know, amenities, you get the nice seat and the and the hot towels and, you know, and so I think the Oscar race is about delivering the first class passengers what they want. But the ironic and weird thing about it is that probably this is true for first class passengers. It's still not good enough. Right. So they're still going to be complaining, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's not, they don't offer vegan options or it's not sustainable or it's you know they're not recycling or whatever it is. And so I know this is true of publishing too. The, the the things that do get selected for the Oscar race and the Oscar race itself and the industry is so tightly scrutinized. Are you sending the right message? You know. Yes. So this is something I definitely wanted to talk about because I wrote something actually. Um, I guess it was, it was at the start of last year about the Oscars and about how the new diversity criteria for a movie being considered for Best Picture, which is something that I, I want to talk about with you um, in a few minutes, how that's sort of part and parcel of a longstanding trend where 
the Oscars seek to kind of set a moral tone. And also where Hollywood tends to invoke these speech codes, they tend to police themselves um, as a preemptive strike against the government stepping in to do it. That was the source of the Hayes Code. You know, they they saw the government sniffing around and they were like, okay, we're going to police ourselves. We're going to say no sexy stuff on screen because whatever code the government tries to impose on us, like it's going to be worse. So like, let, let us, the studio executives, get together and create a speech code that will satisfy the government so they don't meddle. There was a similar thing, you know, the Waldorf statement where they got together and they were like, we're not going to have communists in Hollywood anymore. Like, again, they did that because they were trying to keep the House on American Activities Committee from like getting in there and messing around with their shit. Um, But one of the things that I was really interested to learn was that the Academy was originated as a means of sort of undercutting and undermining Hollywood workers' ability to organize. Like you had Louis B. Mayer, who was doing all of these underhanded things. He was, um, you know, borrowing the set workers, the set builders. He would take them off the studio lot and he'd bring them to work on his house. And then he'd be like, it's fine. It's all studio business, right? And so when they started kind of wising up to this, one of the reasons he wanted to create the Academy was to, you know, for one thing, to keep them from organizing by placing them in competition with each other for this award that was actually like, it was very important to them all of a sudden, but it was meaningless to him. Um, The other thing though, was that it gave him the ability to control the output of the movies in a way that most studio executives, like they didn't have that kind of power. Um, They didn't have that kind of creative control. And his direct quote, which I thought was really funny, was if I got them cups and awards, they, the filmmakers, would kill themselves to produce what I wanted. Mm -hmm. So now we have, you know, a hundred years down the road, um, this sort of established tradition of the Academy awarding movies with especially Best Picture that say something about like how they want to see themselves and how we want to see ourselves, you know, movies that send the right message. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how that has evolved over the years, like some films that stand out to you as being about, you know, like, sort of a virtue signal from the Academy rather than necessarily about awarding like artistic excellence. Yeah. I mean, it, it, um, it's funny because it used, they've always been, whether it's, you know, no matter what the movie is or the era is that the movies always reflect them in a good light. Like that's, that's always been their motivating factor as it would be anybody. Like they want it to reflect how good they, they seem. It's just that the definition of that has, has changed over the years. Um, it's, it's, completely flipped from when it was in the 1950s where the the conservatives were the side that wanted to be seen as good and the subversives were on the left and now it's it's flipped where the the left is the more conservative side that that wants uh to control how people you know what they see what they watch what is so funny is that the same thing that the communist hunters were trying to keep out of hollywood movies which was indoctrination and communist ideology infused into screenplays and films and they they did a lot of policing to keep that out is now the norm in hollywood movies or, or tv shows so the they've gone so far on at amazon studios actually to 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 have an in- inclusivity handbook or playbook that even tells people how to tell stories and what kind of characters they can't have in there 
and, you know, what sort of messages that they send and how they should crew their films. And so, you know, that a movie coming out of Amazon studios is going to have this, their sort of fingerprints all over it. You know, these do better kind of committee that, you know, is, is going to make sure that they are on board with, you know, whatever it is that Twitter is going to flip out about. Um, and then they do it. I think in, in this case of Amazon is they really are true believers. Like they think they're making society better. And so they'll inject the, their doctrine and their ideology into movies. And when, when this audience, this singular elitist group of people sees it, they recognize, yes, that's the message that we want to send. So when did I start seeing it? Well, unfortunately I was one of the like woke pioneers. I was back in 2013. I was somebody who was championing, um, diversity, equity, and inclusion before I, I even knew what it was, you know, like I was just talking about the white wall of the Oscars and how, you know, white it had been for so long and why is it so hard for, for black women and black actors to break in or black filmmakers? Oh, so before uh, the Oscars so white hashtag controversy, you were there ahead of time. I was. And in fact, um, I had been like championing Ava DuVernay before anybody even knew who she was. I was talking about her movie, Middle of Nowhere. And I was saying, why isn't she a bigger star? She won Best Director. And, and I was so loud and obnoxious about this that I ended up losing like half my readership. And it was so funny because people now that are, you know, completely on the on board with all this stuff condemned me for, for that back then, which is, and are also condemning me now for my, you know, pulling back from, from this, because I think it's kind of gone too far in the other direction, um, which, you know, I, I felt I was being honest then. And I feel that I'm being honest now. Um, so it was right around the same time as, as, you know, the critical theory stuff was starting to happen on campuses. So like 2013, 2014 was when this stuff started to happen in Hollywood <clears throat> movies like 12 years a slave or a moonlight or, even spotlight, they started to become heavily scrutinized by people, um, not even just the subject, but the people who made them. Now we're at a point where if you're a white man and you made a movie, like that counts against you as potentially winning, right? You're never going to be the host of the Oscars. They're not mm. going to put you front and center. It has to be anybody but a white man. And so if white men happen to have made all the great movies, well, then they're going to have to try to find a way to, to make that not the case. Interesting. So I have like, I have a bunch of questions I want to ask you. Um, I mean, one of the things that you just mentioned, which I think is really interesting, and this is probably most people's entree, you know, if they know anything about Oscars drama, this is what they know is this, this endless quest for a host that's gotten harder and harder over the years because no, they don't want a white man. Um, but they want like a person who checks certain identity boxes, but who thinks like the wokest, most college educated white man who ever mm -hmm. existed. You know, they want somebody who is that careful and that sensitive and that palatable to a very particular set of sensibilities. And of course, a lot of artists of color who are you know, provocative in their own right, particularly someone like Kevin Hart, who was awarded and then um, lost in extremely public fashion the right to host the Oscars. They really challenge the sensibilities of this extremely elite, extremely white educated class of people who's kind of making the decisions about who gets to represent the Oscars. And that's really what it's about. I mean, it. that's why 
it's not going to end until it, the people who are being used as shields, human shields to protect the elite ruling class, which is majority white until they stand up and say, you know what? I don't want to be used anymore like this. Like, this is like the last year's Oscar ceremony, which had terrible ratings. I mean, if you watch that, it was like, it was staffed completely with people of color. Right. And so they were giving themselves a, it was a false impression of who they are. They're, they're still 80% white, I think it is, um, and 70% male. I think that's still the demographics. It hasn't moved much since they started to try to change them. Mm-hmm. So that's not who they are, you know, like, and it's the same with the Academy Museum. They've, they've completely changed the definition of who they are, right? Who they used to be. And they've erased their entire past. It reads like a long apology for having been, you know, been an institution built on, you know, what they would call white supremacy, but it really is just a matter of the population was majority white, you know? Oh, didn't I see something? I'm I'm going to speak off the cuff here, so I might make mistakes. But I swear I saw something about the Academy Museum, you know, reorganizing itself to, yeah, be very apologetic about like the industry's history of bigotry and white supremacy. But yeah. in the process of doing this, they decided not to acknowledge the contributions of Jews to Hollywood yeah. over the years. Am I remembering this right? Did that happen? That did. Yeah. Somebody said something about that. I can't remember. I read an article, too, that said that. And then they, of course, apologized they didn't mean to do it that way. They just didn't think of it. You know, like it was, I walked around the museum and, and, you know, it's a beautiful building and everything. Um, but it's just, it's such a beautiful lie. Like it really is like they're highlighting, um, Sasheen Littlefeather who Marlon Brando s- sent up there to s- accept his award for the Godfather. And that was booed and condemned. And, you know, they, they were very angry that it happened. And, you know, that's the truth. And so, you know, I'll give you a, a weird example. Um, George Clooney made a movie called The Tender Bar this year, and it's from Amazon Studios. And The Tender Bar is based on a memoir of a real life guy. And he was, you know, a working class New Yorker, Long Island New Yorker, who got into Yale. And when he was at Yale, he felt like Gatsby. He felt like, you know, he was in love with the Daisy who was at the end of the dock, you know. And it was this waspy blonde woman um, that he could never really be of her class and of her people. She ended up using him for sex and then getting married. So George Clooney, wanting to be inclusive and diverse, casts that character with a black actress, right? And so now you're watching this movie, which takes place a long time ago, and you're just asking questions. <laughs> you're just like, wait a second. So there was no systemic racism in Connecticut. Westport, Connecticut, like, what is that? Like the epicenter of waspiness? And <laughs> I actually live next door to Westport, Connecticut. And <laughs> yes, yes, it is. <laughs> okay, so how, how do you just throw that in there? You know, and, and so you're thinking, oh, she's at Yale. That's interesting. What's it like to be a black woman at Yale back then? You know, <laughs> you're just, all these questions are coming up, but, and, and it's completely threw the movie off. And, and the funny thing was, I found this long essay by this woman who was mad, mad at the movie and mad at George Clooney because of that. She was like, you know, so he didn't really get the credit that he wanted. She was mad because it was all about white privilege. It was all about this guy's white privilege who just ignored this black woman that he was, <laughs> he was in love with. Yeah. This is like blatant Karen erasure, honestly. <laughs> 
I know, and he meant well. And it's just to me, it's just one of those weird things. Like you can't have it both ways. You know, you can't do colorblind casting and then also say, you know, every single relationship is, you know, about race and we can't, we have to talk about that. And, you know, if you're yeah. teaching kids about white privilege and stuff, and then you're trying to show that, no, there is no dividing line. I don't know right. if it... Not in a story that's so incredibly focused too on class resentments and class tensions. I mean, that's where things always seem to get complicated and break down. But um, so you started out though as a real champion of, you know, improving diversity in Hollywood. And, you know, one of the things that I've heard you talk about and read um, read about on your site that I think is really astute is that this is not like a non-problem. It's just that right now we're in the midst of an overcorrection that doesn't really address the actual issues and that, you know, has served to kind of alienate a lot of people. But, um, you know, you've talked before about the best director race at the Oscars, which is sort of like a litmus test for getting to break in and getting to make prestigious big budget movies and how there's been historically just a complete dearth of women represented in this category. It's really like it is sexist. It is unforgivable. Um, you know, there's no reason to look back at, you know, I mean, when was the first woman nominated for a, for a best director Oscar? I think it was like, well, there was one in the seventies. So it was like Lena Vertmuller was nominated, but then it was like years until another woman was, um, you know, you finally get into, even when like Penny Marshall was making movies, um, and Barbara Streisand was making movies, you know, that, that did well, that got Best Picture nominations. They didn't get Best Director nominations. It just is such a boys club for so long. Right. And I mean, you look at that and I mean, it's just fundamentally impossible that all of the best movies and all of the best directors, you know, over the course of a hundred years of Hollywood history have actually just all been men with like, a few yeah. tiny exceptions. Like that's just a ridiculous idea. So clearly there's something happening there to shut right. women out. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, what those factors are and like what, uh, I mean, we, we've seen what the attempted solution has been, but what would actually maybe have been a more effective one? Because I was doing the so much sort of advocacy for, for so much of, of my time doing this in 2009 when Catherine Bigelow was finally, that's why I pushed so hard for Ava DuVernay for all those years. Um, but you know, we were all into that first woman of color, first woman to win. And in 2009, Catherine Bigelow finally came along and, and was able to to really shatter that because her movie was good, you know, and, and she deserved it. And it was, it wasn't just a pat on the head, you know, it wasn't just a good job, honey. It was, she made a great movie and they liked her movie and they awarded her for it. It didn't make a lot of money, but it was still, I still watch it. It's still one of the few Oscar movies that I'll watch over and over again. I think it's just amazing. Um, this is the Hurt Locker. Yeah, the yeah, Hurt I, Locker. I recently yeah. rewatched that. God, that is a tense movie. <laughs> it's so good, and she's such a good director. She would get completely savage later when she made Detroit because it was an all black cast, and they're like, "We don't want a white woman making a movie," <laughs> and so you can't win. But um, and then before it was like, "Why is she only making movies about <laughs> white characters?" So um, that in a way that the woke, I think, in my opinion, they sort of eat their own. Like it's it's. Uh, it's a power that that is hard to to back off of. But the idea that women should be handed it is the thing that bothered me because they're not, they act like they have a handicap, like there's something wrong with them and that they need to be given an accommodation. 
like the BAFTAs uh, after 2020, they got into so much trouble for their, I mean, it has to be called racist history. Like Denzel Washington has never been nominated for best actor at the BAFTAs. Um, they, they decided to instead like take away the, the, the opportunities for the voters and bring in a committee uh, to hand select. And what they've done is they've taken the best director category and they forced them to put in five women and five men, you know, and then, and then the voters will come in and select them to try to make it make, force them to like these movies or force them to say these are great movies, but that doesn't do women any favors. It didn't do Greta Gerwig any favors to sort of overpraise her film. I didn't think. And so all that does is really set women back because it puts them in a place of like, you can't actually make good movies, but we're going to push you in anyway, because we need to like even things out a little bit. Yes. Oh my goodness. So Gerwig's Little Women and the notion that was pervasive, like uh, it was like the subtext in all of the conversations was like, yes, this is the best a woman can do as a director. Yeah, it's like, this is a bad movie. It is not a good movie. It's a bad movie. It was choppy and it didn't make sense. And, um, and it, it was sort of the, this weird thing of like, I mean, I think honestly, if you want to talk, if you really want to talk sexism, you don't get anywhere in the Oscar race if you're a woman unless you're good looking. Like it really is that it comes down to that all the time, unfortunately. But like they'll, they'll you know, so looks have a lot to do with it. And the fact that people really like her, Greta Gerwig, I think drove a lot of that. But what shocked me was how the mainstream media picked up the narrative and the, the New York Times, the Washington Post, that the Oscars were sexist and that some great wrong had been done. And um, that was really, for me, the turning point. I was, I, you know, I got my courage together and I wrote about it and I just said, no, that's not true. You know, and, and so from then on, it's really been I go one way and they go another, you know, and um, they're winning. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they're winning maybe in one sense, but are they really like what's happening to their souls? <laughs> Well, and the ratings are tanking and, you know, my daughter, she's 20, she's 23 and, and in her group, like they're, you know, believe me, they're, they're very woke young people, but they think they don't have a high regard for the Oscars. Like they're, they see them as trying to make them look good. Like they can suss that out, you know, that these are not, these are performative, they're, you know, virtue signaling and they're Oscar movies and therefore they have nothing to do with us and we're not interested. If you don't have the young generation, what's your future? You know? Yeah. And this is so this is where we get into the Oscars sort of desperately trying to cling to their legitimacy as, um, you know, being able to sort of set the moral tone, even as their ratings keep plummeting. And we've seen a lot of weird, desperate stuff. Um, so there have been these diversity like quota requirements and uh, best picture in order to be nominated you have to check the box in two of four categories and the one that raised a lot of eyebrows when it was announced um, I think at the end of 2020 was on-screen representation themes and narratives because it seemed like it was really interfering with the creative process you know here you're going to now be influencing the casting of films, the content of films, who gets to tell stories, what kind of stories are being told. But also, like, this is really, this code is easy enough to meet if you're a major studio and you have major studio support because you could, like, I don't know, hire like a head marketing person for your film who checked a certain box. So I was interested to know, you know, 
whether you've observed, I think this is the first year that these, unless they got delayed because of COVID, this was going to be the first year that these um, requirements were put into place and were going to impact what was being nominated. So I wondered if you've noticed any change in what kind of movies are being made or how they're being made um, in the quest to make sure that they don't get excluded on diversity grounds from the Oscars race. As I was listening to you say that, I was just thinking, it's done. It's over. Like, <laughs> you can't, art, art cannot survive that. It can't. It can't survive that kind of micromanaging because the second, you, you know, you can see it on screen. It's so obvious when, when they're doing that, when it's not an organic part of the story. And I'm not sure what their ultimate goal is other than to protect themselves. Just like every other, just like the New York Times or any other institution of power. They want to look good. So they're going to do all these strange things to protect themselves. But what good is that really doing? Like, who is that really affecting? Who, who other than these, you know, Laura Dern types or whatever, like, how is it, you know, impacting the broader world? How is it really changing the world? Is it just to make the Oscar voters look good? And in so doing, they're alienating everybody. So you can see it pretty much in every movie, right? One of the ways that that I recognize it is, and, you know, obviously it goes without saying, I'm telling you something you already know, but you know, if you bring this up, you get completely attacked on Twitter. I mean, mm -hmm. you can't even criticize a movie without getting um, me, especially I'm a target. I get bullied by them a lot for, for things that I think, cause I'm, I'm like you, I say what I actually think instead of what I want, they want me to say. But anyway, the, you know, LGBT, Q themes get injected into almost every movie because you know that they have to be intersectional. They have to have, you know, that everything has to be represented for everybody. And if they leave one thing out, they get scolded. Like Lin-Manuel Miranda's um, In the Heights, that movie, you know, made every effort to be as absolutely inclusive as possible, but it still wasn't inclusive enough, you know, because it was colorizing or, or uh, I forget the, the word, but. Um, oh, colorism. Yeah. They, so the, I mean, it's, it's actually kind of insane that this is even a conversation that's taking place in 2021, <laughs> but uh, like, you know, the, yeah, the actors weren't dark enough, literally, you know, their skin wasn't dark enough. You had to come out and make this long apology. And I was like, what are you apologizing for? Like you did nothing wrong here. You know, they, they should be able to have their observation, but it shouldn't affect anything else beyond that. I mean, let, you know, people, everybody has a right to their own voice, but they, they shouldn't be scurrying around, you know, um, trying to fix things and trying to, to please Twitter. That's just a, that's a losing battle. But like, for instance, the mayor of Easttown, right? Great show. Everybody loved it. Won a bunch of awards. But what struck me about watching that show was it was rural Pennsylvania, right? We know that's pretty much Trump country mostly. And, you know, so that's the truth of who they are, but, but the show had to be woke, right? So the, the daughter character was, was, you know, an out gay woman and nobody said anything about it in the family. And I'm not saying that like every person who lives in rural PA is homophobic, right? But don't you think that that's kind of maybe something they should sort of explore, possibly like it didn't just i'm always telling my daughter this like you know we can't explain homophobia what homophobia is or what it was without you know understanding you know how it still matters and so what i think they're trying to do is they're trying to just you know just move things forward be representative in the in the shows and people love it you know in that in that one um group so 
Yeah. You know, Mayor of Easttown, well, I mean, it's interesting one because it's a television show. And I think that um, some of the, the, the sort of like corporate wokeness or like woke capitalism that you see really starting to dominate, um, you know, mainstream movies is still less prevalent in television. And you have a lot of filmmakers kind of fleeing to television as a medium as a result. They can still do things there. You know, they have room to tell a story and there's room to make it intimate in a way. Um, You know, I think that the thing about trying to make a movie all things to all people and to make it palatable is that you lose a lot of the intimacy of like a really great, close, uncomfortable film that focuses on a character who's complicated, um, Mm -hmm. you know, who like maybe you wouldn't want to be best friends with um, or, you know, who you wouldn't want to like bring to dinner at your professor's house. I'm trying to think of like, I'm trying to think of what's the scenario, what's the scenario where you'd be ostracized for you know, engaging with this person. But, but, you know, Mara, like she for sure voted for Trump. Like, That's what just, I was saying. Like, these are Trump people. Like, come on, let's um, just say it. You know, yeah. why not just put it in there? And you have incredibly... On the one hand, this young woman who is an out lesbian who's, you know, who's dating other women or other girls and, yeah, nobody says anything about it against a backdrop where the normal thing if you're a heterosexual woman is to apparently, like, get pregnant and have a baby in high school Um, (laughs) or, you know, or to be engaged in, like, prostitution light or pornography um and the existence of like those two storylines where one of them is is interrogated and the other is just like no this is just how things are it's fine it's cool that's really an interesting dichotomy it is and it, it robs i think people marginalized people of of their authentic experience it it, it puts them in this weird cat that's why by one of my complaints about for black women in hollywood is the opportunities are so narrow and they become even more narrow when they have to sort of carry the burden of the entire movement on their shoulders and they they can't play complex characters they can't play dark characters they can't really play villains bad complicated villains because everything they do and everything they say speaks for the entire community and it's the same with that LGBT character. Like if they had made her say a drug addict or, you know, she was the one who got pregnant or whatever it was, you know, they, they, that would be considered a criticism of the entire community. Mm. And, but, but the opposite thing happens is just these kind of boring, you know, characters that, that don't seem real. Yeah. It's um, a very facile way to approach art. And I, I don't think it's great. Um, so, you know, we've talked a lot about what doesn't work um, and, Obviously, the movie industry, Hollywood itself, is still really dominated by not just white guys, but white guys who come from certain backgrounds. There's still a lot of kind of like, you know, similar to the Ivy Leagues, you've got these Mm -hmm. legacy families, you know, and if you have a parent who's in the industry, then you can get in yourself. Um, In terms of correcting for, you know, for the lack of diversity, and this is not just about, you know, who's telling the stories, you know, who's writing or who's starring, um, who's directing, but also just like who's working in the industry where you have more and different kinds of people in the background there. Is it just a question of going back far enough to correct inequities that allow more people to go to film school, that allow more people to, to break in without having money? How does, you know, what would be a good solution? 
Well, I'll tell you the one that I used to say that women needed to be mentored the same way that men need to be mentored. But the problem is, is if you can, if you don't allow them to fail, they're never going to get better and they're never going to be better and they're never going to be the greatest of the great if they can't fail um, because then they have nothing to work for. So the problem is, is that men are allowed to fail. Men are allowed to do white men are allowed to do just about any, I mean, not allowed now because obviously they're being stopped or they're being, you know, you can't make movies or we won't hire you or we, we won't reward your film because you're a white guy. So that's happening too concurrently, but just, just, just generally speaking, they can, they have the absolute freedom to explore any subject they want and they're not going to get condemned because how much worse could it be than you're considered like the worst thing <laughs> you have already, you know? But, um, but I think that, the whole thing has to loosen up, you know, people have to, to really start to become daring. The the people who are being used, I think need are the ones who need to speak up and say, you know, I'm not comfortable anymore in this box. You know, I want to break out of it. I want to tell these kinds of stories and I don't want to always be this good person doing something good with the movies that I make or standing up for, for the community. I think that as with everything, you know, we, what we need is we need market constraints, you know, like book publishing. If you go on audible, which I do, um, and I read the mysteries, the kind that you wrote exactly that. Um, and so the more people that read those, they just keep producing them more and more and more of them, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's really the idea bring back the market, measure it with box office or ratings or something and give people something to strive for and compete for. Um, and then like, you know, I think that, that that will naturally correct it. Opening the door is great and giving people these positions is great. And and I think that actually as crazy as it is, all this woke, woke stuff has really helped in a lot of ways and, and opened a lot of doors and presented a lot of opportunities to people. But now that they have those opportunities, they have to be able to be free to tell the kind of stories that they want to tell. You know. Mm -hmm. So um, what is... An example. I want to give you an opportunity to be specific here. Um, who's who's a filmmaker who, uh, let's say, one of these white guys who failed so spectacularly that if it was anybody else, that would have been the end of his career. Oh, you know that's so common, right? That that happens all the time. Like that. That's how it always was. Men fail upward. I'm thinking of one in particular. I, I'm afraid to say his his name. I did once say hi to him drunkenly and tell you right it was very awkward and awful it was one of those like stinging shame moments that you think about later you're like i didn't just do that did i All right. you have to you have to tell me but i'll bleep it out okay so so oh my uh, god ah! <laughs> horrible movie after horrible movie terrible movie after terrible movie yet continues to make movies and continues to be somebody that they want to succeed. They just keep backing them up because Hollywood royalty, right? Like that's just his life is made. His career is made. And that's that. They don't throw them away they, as they did with women. Mm -hmm. Catherine Bigelow has been thrown away. Jane Campion was thrown away and now she's back. But, you know. Yeah. So maybe things are changing. Maybe. Maybe. So I think that that's an upbeat note to end on for the main portion of our conversation. And now um, if, you know, folks want to hear the rest of this, because um, now, you know, invite Sasha to give her most searingest hot takes. Um, <laughs> and I'm also going to make her talk about crash, which is something that is uh, a subject near and dear to my heart. <laughs> it's the worst, worst, best 
picture winner ever. <laughs> if you want to hear that part of the conversation, you'll have to subscribe. So uh, yeah, thank you so much, Sasha. You write at awardsdaily.com. Where else can people find you? Um, I have a Substack where I do my political writing at like sashastone.substack.com if you're interested in that. I mostly do politics stuff, but I do some Oscars there too. All right, you do it all. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you. What a huge pleasure. I hope I didn't ramble too much. You were great. And this has been Feminine Chaos.